morning to those who are here with us. Welcome, welcome, and uh, to those who are joining us online as well. I hope you're as excited as I am about Pastor 411 coming back. This is going to be our fourth year doing this, and uh, every year we are just essentially flooded with questions from people who are just things even come up where you're kind of curious, well, what about this passage, or what about this, this event I read about in the paper, how are we to respond to that, or, you know, I've always wondered with this aspect of uh, theology or how we relate to God, whatever your questions may be, feel free to email them in to uh, pastor411 at westmeadows.org, and we will add them to the list of questions we consider covering throughout the month of April, and we'll just uh, see how many we can get through. I'm really excited this year because we're adding the aspect of having a bit of a theme as well. So each Sunday, we're going to be focusing upon at least a couple of questions that have to do with heaven and hell. And I know there's a lot of questions around that topic, so we're going to focus upon that a little bit as well. One of the questions actually is going to come from last week's sermon. If you were with us last week, I was talking about how God grants the same grace to all people. He offers the same invitation to receive his gracious mercy to all people, regardless of when or how they come to receive him. <clears throat> but one thing I mentioned but didn't fully cover is this, also this idea of rewards in heaven. That's kind of inherent to that passage as well. And so that's actually one of the questions we're going to cover uh, in one of the first two weeks of Pastor 411 is, well, how do we understand this idea of rewards in heaven? How do we reconcile that with the idea of us all receiving the same grace and yet there being rewards? So stay tuned if you're interested in that or if you have other questions about that. Send them in and we'll see if we can include them. We're going to continue our series on grace today. Uh, understanding grace from God's point of view. And we're doing this by looking at four parables that Jesus taught that relate to the subject of grace and give us a bit of a deeper meaning or, or looking at some of the deeper implications of what his grace means for us in the world around us. And today, the, the title for today's message is Living on the Edge of God's Grace. Now, whenever I hear that phrase, living on the edge, my mind goes back to June 23rd, 1993. Now, that's rather specific, isn't it? So there must be a story behind that. Well, here's why. You see, June 23rd, 1993, what's so special about that date? Was it the fact that I had just graduated high school about 10 days earlier? No. The fact that I was about 18 and it was a beautiful Sunday afternoon, you see, it had been raining earlier in the day, but the sun had come out, and it was warming up, and, and the freedom of school and what's next in life it was feeling pretty good. My friend Trent came by to pick me up, and we were just going to go drive around and listen to music. He just bought a new album and see what the day holds for us. And so as we get driving on this beautiful afternoon, we come up about five minutes from my house across a bit of a little, a little hill that hits a turn, and in the corner of the road, there was a puddle that hadn't completely dried from that morning's rainstorm. And as we went over that puddle, we started to hydroplane a little bit. And so Trent tried to correct, and he overcorrected. And I knew in a moment that we were heading towards the meridian. And I remember when we hit the meridian, and then we flipped four times across four lanes of traffic, hit a tree, and landed. Now, in the course of all that flipping, I lost consciousness. And this is actually a picture from the newspaper, the Prince George Citizen, front page, June 23rd, 1993, of our car accident. Now, when I regained consciousness, I 
looked around a little bit, and I remember I, I could feel the grass on this side of my head, and, and I could feel the car on this side of my head. Now, to say that I have a hard head is true, because <laughs> apparently it's hard enough, I'm a little hard-headed, I guess, to, to withstand the weight of a car. Because I had half been ejected from the vehicle, and, and when I managed to get out, I remember that I was trying to get my bearings, and the whole time while this is happening, I'm trying to figure out what's going on, ironically, the album we were listening to on the tape deck was still playing. You see, it was right around the time that Aerosmith's new album came out, and the soundtrack to this event in my life was their new hit song, Living on the Edge, <laughs> was playing while we were flipping and rolling and trying to emerge from this moment. I, I still find some, uh, some odd humor in that, that that was a soundtrack to that particular event in my life. But that phrase, living on the edge, speaks of a person who, who tends to be drawn towards or is constantly finding themselves in dangerous situations. Now, now we didn't choose to have a car accident. We weren't really driving excessively fast. The, the Fast and the Furious movies hadn't come out yet, so we weren't auditioning for it. Well, it's an 83 Honda Civic hatchback. Like, how fast can you go, Right? We aren't excessively speeding. But there are some people in this world who do actively seek activities or careers that would define them as living on the edge. Maybe you've heard of something called free climbing, where mountain climbers will go to a large granite face and with no equipment, no safety gear, sometimes not even a partner, just them, some chalk on their hands and some climbing shoes, and they will scale a mountain. Some people like to go uh, a pole, a giant pole, or, or a building, and they'll skydive off of it. So some people are a little tamer, but they'll chase after roller coasters. These adrenaline seekers. There's just something about them where they, they, just, they just live so close to the edge of death that there's something about that that just grabs their attention. Now, most of us are not going to go run with the bulls anytime soon or go hang gliding later today. We're just not wired that way. But it is true, spiritually, spiritually speaking, that there are many people who choose to live on the edge of God's grace. You see, some will live by this philosophy of, well, I hope I can do enough good to, to skip the tail, scales of heaven in my favor before it's too late. Others who live by more of a, of a Christian understanding that forgiveness is by Jesus alone are still constantly plagued by doubts. And they'll say things like, well, I, I hope I don't out-sin God's grace. And they fear the quantity of their sin may be too great. Other people will say, well, they'll read about this unforgivable sin. And they'll think, well, I, I, I hope the quality of my sin isn't too great. You see, there are many in this world of, of different spiritual beliefs and lack thereof who live in a spiritually precarious position. You could say that they're living on the edge of God's grace. And the truth of the matter is, some people are. The truth is, some people are. That as amazing as God's grace is, as, as abundant as God's grace is, it does have its limit. And in this short parable we're going to look at today, Jesus reveals just the power of his presence in a person's life. But he also confirms as well the cutting edge of where God's grace ends. Now, for many of us, this will serve as a, as a reassurance, a reassuring us of a promise that Jesus has given. 
But for others, it also possibly serve as a warning, as a call to, to see the edge of God's grace. Now, this parable found in Mark chapter 3. Like many of Jesus' parables, it is birthed out of the context of a particular event and audience in the ministry of Jesus. You see, in the middle of Mark chapter 3, it's very early in Jesus' ministry. He's new on the scene, but he has already drawn attention from all corners. At this particular time, he is trying to stay and relax in the home of Peter and Andrew in Capernaum. But the crowds just keep building. They just keep on coming, seeking after him. They, they, they've seen and heard of the miracles. They, they know that they could possibly be healed if they can just touch him. They've heard him teach and they want to hear more. Maybe, maybe even a chance that are close enough to him that they could speak and actually have a conversation with him. People are pressing in to the point where they can't even eat in peace in their own home. Well, word of this has also reached Jesus' family uh, this word about his, his rocketing fame. And they actually themselves make the 30-mile journey to come to Capernaum to bring him home for his own good, they say. But for the family's good, too, because, you know, too much attention's not a good thing for the whole family, Jesus. Well, it was too late for that because the local religious leaders have already taken notice as well. And we see that even by Mark chapter 3, the local leaders have gone from being skeptical. Who does he think he is? To questioning, why is he doing that? To plotting, how are we going to stop him? And so they call for backup. And their backup comes in the form of scribes, these experts in the law who go on an 80-mile journey from Jerusalem to Capernaum to deal with Jesus. This is the equivalent of head office sending in the lawyers to deliver a cease and desist action. They have no interest in observing Jesus. They have no interest in fact-checking him. They don't have any sense that we're going to rationally contemplate what he's doing and levy a decision. No, they've been sent on a mission. Their minds are already mapped. They are firmly bound to the belief that they simply need to get people to stop following him, to stop chasing after this guy. Now, they're not able to deny his healings and his ability to cast out demons because, well, the people have already seen that, and they can't tell them they didn't. So what do they decide to do? Well, what we can do is we can malign him. We can debunk this perceived holiness of this rabbi. And so they do this in verse 22 by leveling this accusation against him. So the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Now, this name Beelzebul is, is a variation of the Old Testament god Baal, who was the primary god of Israel's enemies in the Old Testament. And by the New Testament, this name of, of this idol, of this god from the Old Testament, had become a derogatory name that was often used to refer to the chief demon, who we would understand to be Satan. And the accusation they levy against Jesus is essentially this. That these lesser demons have possessed people in a way that is displeasing to Satan. And so Satan is using Jesus to cast out these lesser demons that have displeased him. Does that sound ridiculous? Yeah, it sounded ridiculous to Jesus as well. And he proceeds to explain to them why it's ridiculous through a parable. But first he asks them a rhetorical question. How... 
how can Satan drive out Satan? For example, Jesus tells me, like, if a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, a house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and he is divided, well, then Satan and his empire cannot stand. It's come to an end. This is a logical response to an illogical accusation. Jesus is basically saying, why would the, arch, why, why would the architect of evil adopt a self-defeating strategy? Because if your accusation about me, Jesus says them, is true, then either Satan's trying to do himself in, or the evil empire is crumbling from within due to internal conflict. You see, you cannot work at cross-purposes to yourself and still maintain authority and dominion. It makes just as much sense as an Olympic sprinter to step to the starting blocks and tie his laces together so that his shoes can't move more than a few inches. And that's what's happening. Not civil war within the ranks of Satan, but what's happening is a direct invasion from without. You see, someone stronger has tied Satan's shoes together. He's not able to run, yet alone be a victor. So in verse 27, Jesus says, In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Now this short parable can be confusing at times. It becomes very, very clear once we understand and break down the pieces you see, the strong man in this very short parable is Satan. Satan is the strong man. The house that's being plundered is, is Satan's dominion that he's been permitted to have in this particular time. And what is plundered? The hapless victims that Satan has taken captive. Now, if Satan is able to defend his house, to defend his property, he will do so tooth and nail as long as he is able to do so. But what if somebody stronger breaks in? What if somebody stronger breaks in and ties him up? They could just take whatever they wanted then, couldn't they? And in Mark chapter 1, verse 7, when John the Baptist first arrives on the scene, he foretold the coming of Jesus, and he said, Jesus is one who will come who is more powerful. And after Jesus arrives on the scene and is baptized, he goes into the wilderness to be tempted where he has his first encounter with Satan. And Satan loses. And Satan had been losing ever since. Because as Jesus teaches, as he heals, as he calls people to follow him, he's plundering Satan's kingdom. And he's setting captives free. Now having established this, it paves the way for Jesus to now levy his own accusation against these scribes, and at the same time offer a teaching on the limit of God's grace. We read this in verse 28. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven of all of their sins, even blasphemies that they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, for they are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this to them because they had seen people have health restored. They had seen people receive their dignity back, return to them. They had seen the movement of God and all of these things, and, and yet they were calling his work. They were calling his character evil. That's the definition of blasphemy. 
You see, blasphemy is, is speech or activity that is defiant to God. It's, it's something that is absolutely intended and insulting to God's character. I read a story this week of a professor, a philosophy professor at a university in Florida who, who gave his class an assignment to do, right, right there in the middle of the classroom. He said, take out a piece of paper and write the name Jesus on that piece of paper. He said, I want you to take that, throw it on the floor, and stomp on it. And many in the class blindly followed his instructions, except for one junior by the name of Ryan who was appalled by this. He didn't do it. Instead, he went to the officials of the school and complained to them. And at first, the officials of the school defended the professor's teaching strategies, but but they soon knew that they couldn't hold that position and, and apologized. Because as Ryan explained to them, if you stomp on something, you're expressing that you believe it has no value. And if I was going to stomp on the name of Jesus and declare that it has no value, I would be blaspheming my God. Now, i got to imagine that that example is pretty offensive to a lot of people. Which is why the school had to back down on the position they had. And, and i got to imagine if we were to take a vote online or, or, or on site here, that a large percentage of us would go, you know what, I, I think that kind of falls into the category of the unforgivable sin. That's pretty awful. Is it the unforgivable sin? Well, it can be confusing because the word blasphemy shows up in both verses. It, it shows up as the sin that's forgivable and the one that is unforgivable as well. So, so it could be. But here's how we can resolve this. You see, the action itself is not what determines if it's forgivable or not. Now, some translations have changed verse 28's word blasphemy to slander instead. If you're following along in your own Bibles, you probably, there's a good chance you'll have the word slander in there instead. The original word is, is the same, blasphemy, but some interpretations use slander instead because they want to draw a distinction between these two. Because there are some awful, terrible, slanderous things that we can say and do that are still forgivable. You know, in the book of Luke, when, when Luke offers the teaching on this particular passage, he also includes an example to, to the audience. He says, when you are under persecution, and if your courage fails you, and if you speak words against Jesus, if you slander Jesus in the midst of persecution, you can be forgiven. And we have an example of that in the Bible as well. Think of Peter. After the arrest of Jesus, when he's about to be tried and Peter's separated and, and fearful, people come up to him, you must know him, don't you? Surely I've seen you with him. And then a 13-year-old girl comes up and goes, you're one of his followers. What does Peter do? He denies, not once, not twice, but three times denies. And the third time he denies with a curse. Falls in the category of blasphemy, Jesus. Peter is forgiven and restored. We also have the example of those who persecuted and nailed Jesus to the cross. And yet, when the cross is then lifted up, what does Jesus say from the cross? He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. See, in these teachings, in these examples, in these words of Jesus from the cross even, it shows that, that a person can slander Jesus. They can even essentially kill Jesus. And yet if they are seeking after receiving his mercy, 
There is amazing grace. More grace than we would ever show. More grace than we think we would ever be called upon or would ever expect to show. Does that mean that there's no limit? If, if God's grace can reach that far, there, there must be limitless grace. And that's not the case either because there, there is a limit. There's a second verse that goes with this. You see, consider a person who remains absolutely closed to the gift of God's gracious mercy. A person who is so adamantly resistant to, to what is holy that they celebrate what is morally evil. A person's life who is so close to the reality of the divine present that they, they choose to not even see it. When they look at the world around them, the beauty and the balance of creation, they, they just they can't see it. When they, when they look at the miracle of newborn life, it, it eludes them. When they see examples of a parent forgiving a rebellious child, it doesn't lead them back to God's forgiveness for other people. When they see a stranger's act of compassion, it just is lost on them. When they see a joyous embrace, when somebody who is healed of a sickness or of a trouble, instead of seeing God's presence and power, they just condemn the very idea of God. That's what verse 29 is talking about here is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This blasphemy denying the work of the Holy Spirit. And what is the work of his spirit? It's, it's many things, but if you read through John 14 and John 16, we can see a few things. I'll highlight three of them for you. Number one, the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict people of sin. Not just followers of Jesus, but even people in the world who do not yet know Christ to convict them of their sin, to reveal to all people where they are guilty of sin and to draw them towards Jesus for healing. The Holy Spirit also is here to correct our ways, to guide us in how we walk so that we can walk in the truth of Jesus, not in a relative truth of our own choosing or of our own decision, not a, not a truth where it, it, it fluctuates based upon the season or the culture. No, it, in the absolute truth of Jesus Christ guides us to walk in his truth. Then we also see that the Holy Spirit is here to counsel our hearts and our minds as we apply the words and the example of Christ to our own lives. But to live defiant of the work of the Holy Spirit, to, to close off your life, to close off your very self from the one thing that has a transformational value, to close yourself off from the one thing that can save you, is what we're talking about here being denying the work of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's not a momentary blip. It's not a season of doubting or, or wandering. You see, when it talks about being guilty of an eternal sin, the word guilt there talks about a person who is bound to their crime. And, and not bound with Velcro. Where you have like gorilla glued yourself to your beliefs. Where you have, you have so bound yourself to your beliefs your actions, your denial of God's truth, that there's no separating you from them. And the word eternal there, it means kind of what you think it would mean, that it is with no beginning, with no end, but it gives this idea that it is not momentary, that the punishment fits the crime, that a person is so bound to their beliefs and their actions, their denial of God, that there's no wavering. It is, it is a set, hard and fast position that they hold, and therefore the punishment fits the crime. This is what Jesus accuses the scribes guilty of. Because they were looking God in the face and calling him evil. 
They were living beyond the edge of God's grace. Not because it wasn't offered to them, but because it could not reach them. So in summary, what is, the, uh, what is the limit of God's grace? It's this. It's that God's grace cannot go where it is not welcome. Now, many people have worried and, and feared and agonized over this because they think that they've committed the unforgivable sin. Endless followers of Jesus Christ have been haunted by a memory, a, a struggle, that they just have violated God's holiness. They think of, of choices or a series of actions from the past that just replay in their mind for, for decades and decades even. And all that it brings is a feeling of condemnation. People have ongoing struggles in their lives, and they, they know it's wrong. They're trying to resist, but, but they're weak. And they feel like they're losing the battle. People possibly who are even sitting in these pews today or who are, who are watching online, who the memory of last night is still fresh and where they failed. And they feel like being here in the service is some form of penance. The result of these sorts of actions and behaviors and feelings that, that plague so many people of the family of God, it, it, it leads to questions like, how could God ever forgive me for that? As though the quality of our sin is great. Or how could God ever forgive me that many times as, as though the quantity of our sin is greater than his mercy? If you've ever wrestled with this, or if you are right now, hear me clearly. The unforgivable sin is not understood as an act or a word. It is not a spontaneous sin. It is not an angry outburst. It is not about doubting or See, the very fact that you're asking the question, the very fact that you feel deep regret for those sins is evidence that you're sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, they belong in the category of sin. That's undeniable. But they belong in the category of sin and slanders that are forgivable. First John 1, 8 and 9, we read earlier today. If we claim to be the truth is not in us, but if we will confess our sins, if we'll acknowledge and be sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit who convicts us and guides us and counsels us to understand that that is sin, that needs to be confessed, that needs to be brought before Jesus, if we will confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just, and he will forgive us of our sins and he'll purify us from all unrighteousness. Remember, God's love, his grace, and his patience are never exhausted. You can never out-sin God in quantity or in quality of his gracious mercy. Now, for the person who has committed the eternal sin, it's different. Why is it different? Because they don't even worry about such things. The person who has committed the eternal sin, to them there is no God to offend. To them is no divine law to measure our actions or ourselves against. To that person, they have allowed their heart to harden like concrete. They have closed themselves off to the reality and the presence of God to the point where they are impervious to the work of the Holy Spirit's attempts to convict and to correct and to counsel. Such a person will refuse to their dying breath to have anything to do with God. 
And therefore, he honors it. Because God will never force himself upon you. He will never force himself upon them. That's an aspect of the free will that we have. And free will is a beautiful thing, but free will even means free will to our own peril. But he will pursue us. He will reveal himself to each person, endlessly pursuing. He's he's been called by some theologians in the past the hound of heaven who will continue to seek after, to chase after, to reveal himself to a person, to continue to knock on the door of your heart. The famous painter, Holman Hunt, painted two copy, two versions of this, one that hangs in Oxford and one that hangs in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. It's referred to as the, the painting called the, the Light of the World. It's an image of Christ holding a lantern, knocking on an ivy-covered cottage door. Now, under closer examination, the door has no latch on the outside. It, it can only be opened from the inside, and, and Holman Hunt painted this as a, as, as a visual parable itself. That God comes through his spirit in countless ways to all people throughout the world. He offers himself as a, re, as a redeemer to, to, to make people whole, but he will not force his way through the door. He will not break the door open. Instead, as we read in Revelations 3.20, he says, Instead, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice, if anyone hears my knocking and opens the door, I will come in. I will eat with that person and they with me. We will have fellowship and unity and union together. And as long as you still have breath in your body, even if you have lived on the side of the unforgivable sin, as long as you have breath left in your body, there is hope, there is opportunity to open that door and to receive the invitation of Christ to allow him to come in. And there's no better example of this in the Bible, maybe even throughout all of history, than Paul himself. Paul, who was the arch enemy of Jesus in the early days of the church, You want to talk about a guy who slandered the Holy Spirit. He was the chief persecutor of Christians. He led the assault with permission from the leaders. He led the assault against the church of Jesus. To the point where he would go house to house, bursting in, roughing people up, and then throwing them in prison. Sometimes even being complicit in some of their deaths. For example, in the death of Stephen, one of the church leaders from the church in Jerusalem, when he was arrested and and declared his beliefs and it was determined that he was to be stoned to death, Paul was there looking on, giving his approval, essentially saying to those guys, let me hold your coats. Paul says of himself, I was once a blasphemer. I persecuted and violently tried to destroy the church. He says, I was the worst of all sinners. But before it was too late, he saw the light. The light of God knocking on the door of his heart. If you read Acts 9, it was more literally a bright light knocking him off his horse to the floor. But he saw the light. And in that moment, his life was never the same. He became the apostle of grace because he had received the grace for the forgiveness of all of those sins, all of those persecutions, all of those slanders and blasphemies. And he also went forward to proclaim that to all. He experienced a transforming power and presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. And he established the church of Jesus Christ upon that good news. The good news that God's grace can forgive every sin in your life, except a life that remains closed to him. That's the unforgivable sin. 
That's the edge of God's grace, is that God's grace cannot go where it is not welcome. An example of Paul is an impossible encouragement for us. That it's possible for anyone to change or anyone to be changed if they say yes to Jesus. If you have been resistant to confessing or surrendering some sinful part of your life to him, listen, can you hear the knocking of God on the door of your heart? He wants to come in. He wants to come into that part of your life and, and, and bring purity and freedom with him. If you have heard God's good news, if you've heard of the grace, truth, and love of Jesus in the past, but, but your past response has been to sneer, to refuse even considering the reality of it, listen, God is knocking on the door of your heart. He wants to come in. He wants to eat with you, to fellowship with you, to, to share life with you, to offer you forgiveness and new life with Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus gave his life for you, and he invites you to open the door and to give yours to him. If you need to confess that today, you can do so here in this place and praying with me after the service. Or if you're online, you can simply click online there, and there will be somebody who will pray with you and receive you as well. But hear that knock on the door and understand that God's grace is extended to all. The power of his transformation. And I invite you all to pray with me now. Heavenly Father, I pray for those here who, who perhaps are hearing that knock right now upon their heart. There's some sinful aspect in their life that they've, they've held on to, possibly out of fear, possibly out of familiarity, possibly out of uncertainty if, if this time there'll be freedom and victory. I pray, God, that through the power of your Holy Spirit that works to convict and to counsel and to correct that we would respond and say, yes, Jesus, come into that part of my life. Bring the freedom and the healing that you make available to all. I've never received that before. Perhaps they've heard the love of Christ in the past, but it sounded like foolishness. To those who have heard of Jesus' sacrifice that we celebrate and remember at Easter and his resurrection and victory, they think it's foolishness. But perhaps right now, through the power of your spirit, Lord, for the first time, the desire to press in, say, maybe it's worth another look. Maybe it's worth the investigation. I pray, God, that that voice would be loud, that that knock would be loud, that we would see people experience the truth of your grace, your presence, and the power that you bring with you. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life for us. Thank you, Jesus, for your gracious mercy that abounds, that is so undeserved, but isn't that the definition? The unmerited, unearned, undeserving favor of God. We thank you for that this day.